Thank you. Well, this morning, we continue our series in Colossians. And I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have thus far. This past week, we met as a preaching group, and it is a real joy to discuss God's word and to ask him to speak to us and lead us and guide us and kind of struggle with it and say, what is he saying to us in our congregation? Now, we've had three messages so far. Dave introduced us to Colossians and and showed us that the, the central theme of this book is Christ, in whom all things hold together. Joel showed us several weeks ago that Paul's intent was to praise God for the work that was evident in this little body of believers and to encourage them because they were facing some hardship and some false teaching. And then a couple weeks ago, Mark focused on the central prayer request that Paul had. That, he, that God would fill the Colossian church with knowledge of him so that they may please him. And so it makes sense in some ways for this next passage because in wanting to encourage the church and then also as an answer to prayer of how you can be filled with the knowledge of God, Paul jumps into, launches into this glorious description of Jesus. Glorious description of Jesus. In whom all things hold together. So I invite you to hear these words from Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. The Son, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things on heaven or all things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. The sermon 
that I am going to share with you this morning is not mine. It was given by Timothy Keller in 1995 on this very passage. He passed away last week, and so it seems appropriate to share his words and to listen to his teaching this morning. I found his message very impactful, and it spoke to my soul, so I hope it does to yours as well. And just a note, this is slightly abridged, and some of the examples I adjusted a little bit because he was preaching during Christmas and in New York City. And so I adjusted some of the examples. So let us hear what Tim had to say. This passage that we just read is a breathtaking roller coaster ride through the doctrine of incarnation. And that's the doctrine of God becoming human. It describes Jesus' divinity in breathtaking ways. Let me show you just a couple of the hairpin turns, just a couple. And then what I would like to do is instead of looking at the doctrine of incarnation, I would like to talk about what it means to us and how it impacts our lives. First of all, this passage teaches us in perhaps an incomparable way that Jesus is God. Look at verse 15 and 16, if you have your Bibles open. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, many people immediately jump to the conclusion that firstborn over all creation means that he was the first in all creation to be born, that he was the firstborn, the first thing God created. But look a little more closely. That is not what it says. If you look carefully, it says he is the firstborn over creation. Everything that was created, he is over. In fact, it says that everything that was created was created through him. Meaning anything that has a beginning has a beginning in him. So he couldn't have a beginning. Everything that was created had to be created through Christ. He was not created. Now, if you were reading this when Paul wrote this, you would know immediately what he was talking about. You see, in most parts of the world at that time, firstborn meant more ruling or ruling authority or standing. It didn't necessarily refer to order. So the term firstborn meant that that designated person got all the wealth, all the standing, all the power, all the status, and therefore was equal to the father. And Paul is saying this. He is saying that Jesus Christ is absolutely equal 
in power and in dignity with God. He is the beginningless one, the creator. He is not one whit inferior to God. And then it goes on. Let me show you another hairpin turn. In verse 19, it says, all the fullness of God dwells in him. All the fullness. The Greek word used here is pleroma, the fullness. And this, this is astonishing. And let me tell you why it's astonishing. If you're like me, for most of my life, when I heard about the doctrine of the Trinity, which is how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one, doctrine of the Trinity, I always thought of him as a pie. In other words, you have a pie of God stuff, okay? Now, it wasn't until recently that I realized I thought about him this way. So there is this pie of God stuff, and there are three slices. The Father has a slice of one-third of the pie, and the Son has a slice of one-third of the God stuff, and the Holy Spirit has the last slice. And they're all sort of joined at the hip. One God, three persons in that sense. But Paul says, wait a minute. All the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of God is in Jesus. Which means the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwell repeatedly in each other. All the attributes. There is not a single attribute of God, not a single part of the Godhead that is not in Jesus Christ. It's not just that Jesus Christ is fully God, but that God is fully in Jesus Christ. That's a hairpin turn on that roller coaster, and you might have lost your stomach on that one. This is going beyond anything anybody says anywhere in the Bible about the absolute deity, the absolute divinity, the supremacy of the nature of Jesus Christ. And then it turns around and says, though he was God, he was dead. Dead. You see that? First born from the dead beginningless creator, the pleroma, all the fullness of God, dead. God became flesh. God became dead. Or in Charles Wesley's sermon, the mystery of all, the immortal dies. Who can explore its strange design? Here's the doctrine God, real God, became flesh, real flesh, not a hologram from heaven, not a ghost. And he bleeds, he sweats, he cries, and he dies. Now there it is, 
What's it mean? My family and I used to live in a town where the snow was so bad that when we first got there, we said we would never forget it. We would never not notice the snow. But it wasn't long before we didn't notice it. Some things that are huge but are always there, it is amazing how the human heart has the ability to adapt and filter it out. That is how we become numb to good and bad things. That is how people filter out smells after a while. That is how I can drive down the road in Grand Junction for weeks and miss the beauty of the mountains around us until someone comes from out of town and reminds me. The same thing that enables a person, because something is always there, to just not see it anymore, not smell it anymore, not know it anymore, not hear it anymore, is what makes it possible for us to come to this passage about Christ's supremacy and go out unchanged. Christ, if Christ is God, God, not a guru, not just a supernatural being, not just a created thing, not a hologram from heaven, but God himself. If Christ is God, let me tell you three differences it should make. It should lead to a reordering, a relinquishing, and rejoicing. A reordering, a relinquishing, and a rejoicing. Let me show you. Number one, a reordering. It says in verse 18 that in everything he might have supremacy. In everything. Now when a big truck goes over a tiny little bridge, sometimes there's a bridge quake. And when a big van goes on a little thin ice, there's an ice quake. When Jesus Christ, if he is the beginningless creator, whenever Jesus comes down into a person's life, there is a life quake. Everything is reordered. If he was a guru, if he was a great man, if he was a great teacher, teacher, even if he was the genie of a lamp, there would be some limits on his rights over you. But if he is God, you cannot relate to him at all and retain anything in your life that is non-negotiable. If he is God, you cannot retain anything in your life that is non-negotiable. Anything. Any view, any conviction, any idea, any behavior, any relationship. 
He may change it. He may not. But at the beginning of the relationship with him, you have to say in everything, he must have the supremacy. Imagine you had a dear friend who was dying of a very rare disease, and you brought that friend to a doctor. And the doctor says to your friend, okay, you'll be dead in a week, but I can cure you. I want you to know I can give you a remedy, but there is this one thing. Now, it will keep you alive for the rest of your life, but you can never eat chocolate again. Now, Bonnie, I got to tell you, this was in the sermon, so... (laughs) Well, we get so excited. I got so excited, or you get so excited for your friend, and you turn to your friend, and you say, isn't this great? And your friend says, no chocolate? Forget it. And you say, are you crazy? Since I've gotten to New York, I very often have this conversation in one way or another. A person says, you know, I need something in my life. I know I need something. And I'm, I'm interested in Christianity, but I've got one question. I've heard a rumor. I've heard that if you become a Christian, there are some things you can and cannot do. Now, With all due respect, there is something rationally and emotionally wrong with us that a question like that would even come up at that point. If there is a God who services perfect freedom, if there is a God who is the source of all beauty and truth, If there is a God for whom to know would result in all of his glory and wisdom and power passing into you so that for endless ages you would run and not be weary. You would walk and not be faint. For his love and his joy and his glory would double in you every day, forever. And if there was any chance that Jesus Christ was that God, how can you say, gee, in that case, because I want my chocolate or whatever it may be, forget it. Look, you can't know the absolute if you absolutize anything whether it's chocolate or sex or anything, you can't know the absolute if you absolutize anything. You can't know the supreme one if anything else is supreme. You might say, well, what do you mean if anything else is supreme? Well, I'll tell you. I've had people say, I'm a Christian, and I know I'm doing something over here. Some people think it's right. Some people people think it's wrong. I don't know. All I know is I have to do it. 
All I know is I need it. All I know is that I have to do it. You know what that is? That's the language of supremacy. That is absolute language. That is the language of ultimacy. If Jesus is God, he can't just come into your life to round it out. He can't just supplement. He is not a vitamin supplement. He can't just be your buddy. He can't just make you a little better. There is nothing in the middle. It's all or nothing. That's what it means for Christ, for God, to be in your life. You can't know the absolute unless you relativize everything else but your relationship to him. I will give you the supremacy in my life. Anything your word says, anything your will says, I will not hinder the supremacy of your word or your will. There's no place in my life that I will point to and say, Lord, not that. Don't touch that. This is what it means to be a Christian. There is nothing in the middle. There is a reordering. If Jesus comes down into your life, there will be a life quake. In everything, in everything, he must have supremacy. That's what this passage means. The second thing means a life of relinquishment. If the Son of God came to earth, that God became human, it doesn't just mean that your life will be radically reordered. It means you will be called to a life of relinquishment. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Look at the titles for Jesus in this text. Image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, fullness of God, dead. That is the archetype of all adventure. Here is what a great adventure is. Every adventure that has ever been written goes like this. A person is in safety. A person is in coziness. A person is in security. But then he or she is whisked away into peril or danger. They go away from safety. They go away from security. They go away from coziness. And they brave all sorts of dangers and perils for some great cause. Now, Jesus Christ is the archetype of all adventure. Nobody left more security than Jesus left. Nobody left more safety than Jesus left. Nobody faced more perils than Jesus faced. Nobody walked into the fire that he walked into. 
Nobody ever braved the storm that he braved. And nobody, no one else, had the jaws come crashing shut down on him like Jesus had because Jesus had all of the justice of God for sin coming down on him. He paid the penalty. So what does this mean practically for us? I'll show you what it means. Jesus Christ was willing to leave the safe, leave the secure for a great mission, for a great quest. He let it all go. You know what it means to be a Christian? It means a Christian says, the last thing I want is a nice life, a comfortable little life reaching my financial goals, keeping my figure past 750, having the home of my dreams. I want my nice little life. You can't look at Christ and ever want that sort of thing anymore. A Christian who is aflame with the Spirit of God says, give me some great thing to do. I'll give up everything to do it. A Christian says, look at what Jesus did for me. I want my life to count for him. I want to make a difference. I want to change lives. I want people to know Jesus. And I expect to give things up. Is that your spirit? If not, you're not listening. And to be a Christian is not to do something like or similar to Christ's adventure. Look at verse 18. It says, he is the head of the body. Do you know what that means? When you become a Christian, you are grafted into the body. The Bible does not just simply say that Jesus' adventure is an example of your adventure. It says when you become a Christian, you enter into Jesus' adventure. You are in the same story. That's the reason why Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. What in the world is he talking about? Why did Jesus become dead? Why did he leave security? Why did he go on the great quest? It says so right in verse 20. Peace. Reconciliation. Do you want to bring peace between people and God? You are entering into this great adventure. Now, those of you who have served as deacons or who have walked alongside and ministered to people who are struggling knows that this means getting involved in people's lives. And very often, those lives are in tremendous disorder, economically, physically, socially, legally, spiritually, and you get involved with it, and after a while, you find that you get calls in the middle of the night. 
You find yourself getting emotionally involved. You find you are not able to go out of town when you want to go out of town. You pay for things out of your own pocket. And you start to say, what is going on here? What's going on is the quest. It's the fellowship of suffering. It's relinquishment. Then when somebody's life actually comes together by the power of God and you see a change that you never expected and you know, you know that it's much greater than what you put in. Here you are just trying to do your best and you see a change and you know it's God. And there is an exhilaration. What is that? It's the adventure. Christians want that. A Christian who understands what Jesus Christ did says, just find me a place on the front lines. I don't expect to have the money. I don't expect to have the friends. I don't expect to have the career. I don't expect to have the reputation. I don't expect it. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Do you know that? Are you after adventure? Or are you after a nice little life? And maybe you're just coming to church and looking for a little inspiration so you can have a slightly nicer life. It doesn't work that way with Christ. He's moving out today. Get your things. Life is short. You don't have much time to do something for him. Enter into his quest. last thing is, okay, all this sounds heavy. Where's the inspiration? Well, it's right here. If Jesus is God, when God becomes human, it leads to a life of reordering. It leads to a life of relinquishment. But it will lead to a life of rejoicing. How is it possible that Jesus Christ faced what he faced. Hebrews 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him so that you do not grow weary or lose heart. Jesus despised the cross. Do you know what that means? No self-pity. He kind of made it light. Okay, the cross, okay. But it is nothing compared to the joy. Look what Jesus did. There is a joy set before you so that if you have to sacrifice for any reason because you're a Christian, you won't say, whoa, look at my sacrifice. 
You despise your sacrifice. You don't complain about them. You don't mention them. In Mark 10, 29, Jesus says, no one who has left homes or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and with them persecution and in the, into the, and to the age to come, eternal life. In trying to follow Christ, some of you have lost income, reputation, family relationships, opportunities. That's a loss. And a Christian who knows Christ says, okay, that hurts. But I will not give those things authority over me. I will not let the loss of them darken me because I have a joy set before me. And what is that joy? It's actually here in the passage, but it is in the whole idea of Christ's incarnation. In the passage, it says, Jesus did all this to reconcile to himself all things. Here is the joy. God will give you himself. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, our sins are forgiven. That means that God in some way, in some way, is going to take all of his unassailable majesty and all of his Un, his consuming fire of holiness and put it into our lives. In a way that it will embrace us and turn us into something glorious and lovely. He says, I am going to give you me. There isn't anything greater than that. God says, if you come to me and give me the supremacy in every area of your life, if you relinquish all for me and enter into my quest, you will get me. That is joy. He is our greatest treasure. And what shall I give? What can I give him? I give him my heart. Please join me in prayer. Our Father, we ask that we might come to realize that if Jesus is God. It changes everything. It moves us from a life of complacency to adventure. It moves us from a life of selfishness 
into a reordered life, a life of perfect freedom under your service. It leads us from a life of grumbling and self-pity into a life of joy. Help us to understand these things and to think about these things until they have their full effect on our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.